Welcome to Clarity Fund Podcast with Dr. Owen Anderson. This is episode 19, and we're continuing in a special series brought to us by Logos Theological Seminary and Dr. Srenry Gangadine called Rebuilding the Historic Christian Faith. Thanks for joining us again, Dr. Gangadine. Glad to be here with you, Owen. And we're, we've been looking at the creeds of the faith as part of the project of rebuilding the historic Christian faith, looking at what is the historic Christian faith. So last time we we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, and today we're going to think about the Nicene Creed and the Trinity. Yes. Uh, just a brief reminder about the creeds. This is not an incidental small point. It's the work of the Holy Spirit leading the church into all truth, according to Ephesians uh, 4. Oh, excuse me, uh, John uh, 16, 12, and 13, and in Ephesians 4, and in Acts chapter 15. And so we come to the third main creed. We should say this about the creeds, that they're historically cumulative, and in the Nicene Creed, we have a repetition of a number of things that are already agreed upon, particularly from the um, Apostles' Creed. And we're going to look at what is uh, particular to this time, the doctrine of the Trinity. And just to uh, keep that in focus, we'll draw to your attention um, two sources uh, that reflect on how far we've gotten. Question five of this shorter catechism <clears throat> in the Westminster Standards, are there more gods than one? There's but one only, the living and true God. And question six, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Originally, and these three are one God. This, excuse me, these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So that's the statement concerning the Trinity in the Shorter Catechism, and in the Westminster Standards, the uh, Confession of Faith, chapter three, chapter two, and section two, it says. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And historically that came up uh, in connection with a naturally occurring puzzle. We say that there's one God, and yet we say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and that seems that we're saying there's three gods. So naturally, the question is, how can you say one God is three gods? Even higher mathematics, it doesn't add up. Yeah, I think that was an enlightenment criticism of the Christians, that Christians believe one plus one plus one equals one. Yes. 
I, I want to re- real quick to make a co- comment about something you said about the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed includes some of what had already been stated there. I think this helps illustrate the uh, growth, how growth works, that it's building on what was already there. And, and yet there are new challenges that have to be addressed. So it's a greater consciousness and consistency. So uh, it's helpful to note that if Christians didn't care about consistency or if faith and reason were in some kind of opposition, then you wouldn't need to take the time to go through all the work to produce a creed. Right. Because the goal is to somehow produce something that is consistent about God being one and three. And consistent uh, involves responding to challenges. Challenges to the faith that doesn't make sense and they go through much discussion. So the creeds are an, assume and affirm the rationality of faith, that it's not with a quip saying, well, there's a higher math, or it's a mystery, or it's a paradox. Um, at best, it's a paradox to man insofar as he doesn't think greatly. So what we want to do in thinking about the creeds, is to understand what it's saying and what it's reasoning in support of it, and also how it applies. And to get to application, we have to look at the assumptions and the implications. And that's part of reading the creeds with uh, good and necessary consequences. Again, the use of reason to understand what is being said, in contrast to no one seeks and no one understands the meaning of things, and that we tend to empty words of their meaning, and that's part of spiritual death. So we do want to look at what is being said. And first level is that there appears to be, from what is being said, a conflict between God as one, and the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and how do you reconcile that? And Arius raise a question there, and he raised it in a particular way in terms of the relation between the Father and the Son. And he's saying the Father is before the Son. And so the claim came up, there's a time when the Son was not, if you do before and after. I think that's how we, we normally take Father and Son in the natural relationship. You think of your Father as older than you. But even in the natural relationship, those terms are relational terms and they operate together in time. The relationship is not sequential, but contemporaneous. You're not father without the son and you're not son without the father. Yeah, so there, if there was a time where the son was not, then there was also a time when the father wasn't a father. As such, in terms of the relational aspect of it. So even at that point, uh, it's not warranted, what he's saying. But on the face of it, without thinking much, you might say that. And for many who don't think about it, the natural answer is yes, that's silly. So the checkout uh, um, girls, so to speak, in that day, were dropping little notes in your basket as you checked out of the grocery store, back then, to use a figure of speech, that um, dropping a, a statements like, there's a time when the son was not, or the father's before the son. So that's how it uh, trickled down into 
uh, popular consciousness in terms of father and son. But there's another le uh, level in terms of um, uh, numbers, math. Using the word God, a father, God of son, God of Holy Spirit, that seems three gods, and yet we say they're one. The Nicene uh, response is that there are three persons, one God. Not there are three persons who are one person, or uh, three gods that are one gods, one God. It says three persons, one God, or it put, puts it this way, there are three persons in the Godhead. So it's not a contradiction, and it can be said there are three persons sharing the same nature in terms of Father is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in all his attributes, the Son, same, and the Holy Spirit, the same. Now, we're backing up into the uncritically held assumptions and trying to make that clearer. And we could say, from general revelation, that when we use the term one, almost always, and it'd be hard to think of otherwise, there is in that which we call one, a unity of diversity. So one is not a kind of monochromatic uh, one without any kind of diversity, but one is a unity of diversity. So when we say God is one, that does not exclude, but affirms God is one as a unity of diversity. And we could go down five or six or seven different kinds of beings, and all of these show that they're a unity of diversity. And that doesn't mean a unity of parts, because that will get us into error. So, for example, some of the some of the pictures of the Trinity they're given are incorrect because they're they're things that have parts. Like an egg has a shell and the white part and the yolk, and all three together make an egg. But that's not what the Trinity's like. Or um, modalistic Trinitarianism, yeah. or um, sequential uh, kind of sequential Trinitarian. One thing at one time appearing this way and that way and the other. No, it's one God, uh, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one. And we might begin to open that by saying uh, God the Father, God the Son, or as in John 1, 1, God the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you yeah. see the opening up of the Trinity, at least uh, two persons there. It's not a word abstract, but uh, a word in a concrete particular, a person. Yeah. And we should say, for example, man is a unity of body and soul. The soul is a unity of uh, a being with many different qualities, but they're in one. And um, there's male and female, as well as body and soul. There's a triune personality in man. So there are a lot of these uh, unity of diversity that occur to us if we would pay attention that ordinarily when we use the word one, it's a unity of diversity. So God is one, is a unity of diversity, but he's a, a highest being. So the highest being would be unity of the highest diversity. 
And we would say persons is the highest kind of being in the universe versus the impersonal. So if God is a unity of diversity, one would expect it to be a unity of persons. And there was not a time when God was without the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And yet it's spoken of the Word as of God and also is God. So there's a distinction being made there between God and the Word of God. And that the Word of God is not an impersonal abstract principle, but a person. Yeah, isn't that how the text shifts there, right? From uh, to, to using he was there in the beginning. Yes. So um, there are affirmations within Scripture and there are things from general revelation that leads us to speak about unity of diversity and the uh, greatest uh, unities of the highest diversity. And so one would expect this, especially when it's taken with God, the Word and the activity of God. And we're not abstracting the activity of God to be some kind of aspect of God, but it's God the Holy Spirit, just as the Word of God is not an aspect of God, but God the Son, who makes God known. And the Logos, the Word of God, is the one who makes God fully known. He's a brightness of His glory, the expressed image of His person. So there are many things that, um, from general revelation and from Scripture, it would lead us to believe, uh, affirm the reality of the Trinity. So, behind the doctrine of the Trinity, the assumption behind the Trinity is that one ordinarily, and we can hardly think of an exception, one is a unity of diversity. The diversity is real and the unity is real. For example, animals are real beings. We have an animal nature. Angels are real being, rational beings, spirits are rational beings, and they have their own nature. But human beings are a unity of two natures, yet one person. You can also have one person or one being or kind of being in three persons or many persons. Human nature exists in a multitude of persons. So the relation between persons and natures and beings have to be explored in terms of the assumption going into the Trinity and not be uh, easily thrown off by flip, casual, simplistic uh, answers about three and one and easy um, uh, avoidance of the problem by appealing to faith as paradox. Your mystery. I wonder about that. Is those those who might go the way of mystery and um, experience of God and some kind of direct experience might might tend to downplay uh, diversity. There's just a oneness of the experience. So when we speak about the limits of reason, we have to distinguished between the subjective limits of reason for a particular person at a time and the objective limits of reason, which can go farther. So we may easily assume when I've reached my limits that that is the limits of reason, whereas we say, no, we haven't used reason to its limits and we can and should and must go farther. 
We're called, it's part of diligently seeking God. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, assumptions going into the discussion of the one and the many. It's been a recurrent problem uh, throughout the ages in philosophy. And some say the many are real, the one is something abstracted from that, existing in the mind only. Uh, Plato wrestled with uh, some of that. There are many ways in which you might wrestle with that problem of the one and the many. But it's not just one and the many, it's unity of diversity. Now, the Nicene Creed also says, the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, we are aware that in the Eastern Orthodoxy, they raise a question about that and saying the Son is proceeding, uh, uh, the Spirit is proceeding directly from the Father, but we're going to affirm the Nicene Creed as the historic uh, creed. People may differ with it, but we have reason to believe it was accepted and practiced, and we say they're equal in power and glory. No subordination. Instead of subordination, we could speak about order, not subordination. And there's an order within the Trinity. The Son is from the Father, not in time, but eternally proceeding. And the Spirit is from the Father and the Son. And that is the statement of the Trinity in the Nicene Creed that is unique to the Nicene Creed that we want to emphasize. And that helps maybe to contrast that with other mistaken views like modalism where God is in different modes or expressions or that uh, God is made up of these three persons. There's something called God who's each of these combined equals God. Or one God with three heads as in some yeah. images of play. All of those uh, were saying that's not the solution to the problem of the one and the many regarding um, the term God and Father, Son, Holy Spirit being uh, equally God. And I wonder if, you, if there might be a kind of two sides to go on that in rejecting the Trinity. One side might emphasize a kind of absolute oneness and on that basis reject Christ as God. Yes, uh, I may want a little bit more on that. There's absolute oneness like in monism, one without any qualification whatsoever. Uh, Advaita Vedanta, absolute non-dualism, speaks of one in that way. They use the term Nirguna Brahman. And Vaita Vedanta, qualified non-dualism of Ramanuja, speaks about God as um, uh, we're, dis we're part of God but distinct from God. Was his wanted to say all is one, but this is one with parts. And they're going to say one without parts. If you said unqualified uh, one, we need to clarify is, is that one without parts, without any modification whatsoever, or is it one with parts? Yeah, there may be theistic traditions like that that say um, God is one, absolutely one. 
Well, uh, let's say Islam might be an example of that. Or deism might be an example of that. Or some forms of Judaism may be examples of that. Some forms. I don't think the Judaic view has been worked out uh, theologically consistently as a system. That's not the focus of uh, Jewish thought. It's more um, practical in terms of the law. But if we take Islamic view of one um, as a challenge, and it has been a challenge, um, we could say, first of all, that, that that one is not a unity of diversity. And when they press the view further and further to consistency, they have to go beyond all distinctions in God, that these attributes are not are like the way it appears to us, but God is beyond attributes. These things cannot be said, and in the end, all distinction is removed, and perhaps one remain God as absolute will, and all things things flowing from the will of God. Um, I think behind that is the assumption that one is not a unity of diversity. That's one level at which is, yeah. and some of it is based on misunderstanding of the Son. He's eternally begotten, not begotten of the Virgin Mary. That's the yeah. incarnation of the Son, not the origin of the Son. Yeah, that's a good point. Because that's the other side is in contrast to the emphasis of oneness, there can be an emphasis of the threeness, and that the the claim that Christianity is really just an Egyptian religion. And the Egyptians had their own trinity before the Christians, but that's just uh, polytheism. That's just a yes, it, a, it's tritheism. The first, first of all, well, it's maybe not even that, right? It's just, it's just like uh, uh, Osiris, Horus, and Isis. Okay, they're all limited and finite, and it, it's a literal husband and wife having a baby. Yes. So again, we're coming back into the temporal realm. God is eternal outside of time, that Logos is eternal. What we have here also is another kind of problem where we say that uh, God in himself, outside of time, beyond time, the author of time, cannot be known by human beings as he is in himself. And that brings us to the point that creation is revelation. And it's through the creation as revelation that God is known. So that doesn't compromise or minimize it. It's just to say that it's we know God as he reveals himself to us in time. So the creation involves the word of God, God said, let there be, and it was. And it also involves the spirit in that um, the spirit is hovering over the waters, brooding over the waters, infusing the waters with what is upholding it and preparing it for the next step, which is let there be light. 
So God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally involved in the creation. And if we go beyond that, outside of time to the very beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the very substance of the universe, at that point we can't make and distinguish between God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit. What we can say is that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is revealed to us in time. We speak about the eternal plan of God, which is uh, conceived of as timeless in the logical order, manifesting itself in time to created beings. But at this point, we're maybe pressing distinctions that could be problematic uh, the distinction between God as he is in himself outside of time and the eternal plan of God with what comes to us in time. Yeah. So um, the Trinity is revealed to us in time and through the great acts of creation and redemption and each person in the Trinity acts differently. So at this point we may speak about the um, distinction between the ontological trinity as he's in himself outside of time and the economical trinity as God comes to be revealed through the creation in time and this order. We only know God as he reveals himself to us in and through the creation. We can't go beyond the creation to know and see God as he is in himself. The whole point of creation is revelation. Yeah, I think that maybe we'll probably be having a, a future podcast about the attempts to do just that, that many people do think that they can somehow have access to God in himself apart from creation or any, any other way that God has revealed himself. That distinction is recurrent in history, appearance and reality, the new, the, uh, Noumena versus the phenomena and the philosophy of phenomenalism from the 19th century into the 20th. It's a recurrent um, uh, view. But the question, why is it we are trying to do what is not possible to do? To know God as God knows himself outside of time, beyond time. We cannot even begin to uh, picture what that could be. We're trying to go beyond the boundary of being finite, temporal, and changeable. And that is what we are by nature. We cannot do. We cannot know God as God knows himself. We can know God as God reveals himself and he reveals himself by his eternal word through the creation and through providence upholding it and redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. And we may need to come back to that point of whether it's possible for human beings to know God as he is in himself. We know things in relation. For example, we may say this apple. What is it in itself? We may speak about the apple as having certain qualities which we perceive through our senses and the, the mode of our senses in as red. And then we say, but what is a light wave of red in itself? First of all, we're talking about light waves. We don't perceive it. It's not 
it's conceived but not perceived, and then it's a length, and even that is a conception, not a perception. So if you're talking in the order of perception, trying to perceive things as they are in themselves, it's contradictory. Perception is of A by a person, P, who is a perceiver. And it's trying to say, what is this relationship apart from and outside of the relationship? And it doesn't make sense. Perception involved is a relational term. Yeah, and I think that helps us get to one other thing that is affirmed in this Nicene Creed, which is that uh, God is a maker of heaven and earth, and that all things were made by the Son. So it's affirming this reality of creation, which we saw in the Apostles' Creed, and that creation is revelation, as opposed to trying to bypass that revelation and get to God in himself. And we should say creation is revelation necessarily, intentionally, and exclusively. And it's not the limits of having a body. Angels, too, know because they are finite, temporal, changeable. All creatures are. Only God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Creatures, uh, angelic beings, too, know God through creation. We know God uh, first by knowing ourselves, like what is uh, being, what is wisdom, what is power what is holiness, and what is finite temporal. And in knowing finite conceptually, we also have the uh, concept of not finite or infinite. So concepts come in pairs, naturally. Yeah. And yes, we well, know God, God necessarily, yeah. intentionally, it was, it was intended to be this, and exclusively. Yeah, the creation is revelation necessarily, intentionally and exclusively. That exclusively uh, needs to be addressed further because people in the beatific vision try to think they could know God somehow directly. And you see how there's all kinds of stumblings and confusions and incoherence in that idea. Well, I think in terms of the order now, as as we conclude with the Nicene Creed, the next one is the Council of Carthage, but we may end up talking next time about the uh, about Chalcedon, because that's going to be going over Christ and the dual nature of Christ. So those are the two coming up, Council of Carthage on the New Testament canon, and then a continuing challenge about the nature of Christ, which was addressed in uh, Chalcedon. We probably need to take a session on each. We will. But yeah. before we go there, there's a line of thought I was beginning, didn't continue. We know God first through ourselves and through the world, and we increase in that knowledge of God. Um, We want to say that we human beings are made in the image of God, and that includes a triune personality. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, which are three aspects of the heart. Words can be used somewhat differently in different contexts. And if we understand the relation between knowledge, holiness, and righteousness and the offices of prophet, priest, and king, we could affirm a functional unity for human beings as we coordinate and cooperate in the work we have variously as prophetic, priestly, kingly. There's a lot of divisions in the church because the application of the doctrine of Trinity, unity 
of diversity in and in a given order from Father to Son to Holy Spirit. So within man, unity of diversity between the prophetic, priestly, kingly in an order from the prophetic to the priestly to the kingly. If we do that, we can achieve a unity and overcome a major uh, hindrance in the church. So the doctrine of the Trinity has an application for us that is vital and we need to spend a significant amount of time at some time about that. Yeah, good. And I think that we would start off with the short Westminster Shorter Catechism. I think that also looks at those offices of prophet, priest, and king in Christ. So we may return to that when we talk about uh, the nature of Christ, the dual nature of Christ. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us again here on the Clarity Fund podcast as we look at rebuilding the historic Christian faith. <laughs>